Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thankful for those that are in the venue. I appreciate John and his leadership in worship and Tyler and his leadership in worship and getting us ready, coming before the throne of the Lord, getting us ready for his word. Let me thank you for uh, many, many expressions, uh, very gracious words last week. Glad it's over. We can move on. Here's to the next 30 years. That's not a commitment. Dr. Carl Zimmerman, who is a Harvard sociologist, studied the rise and fall of empires and found a correlation between family life and, and national life. And his work revealed that deteriorating civilizations follow a very definable pattern. And he found five common characteristics in civilizations that unraveled. Number one, marriage lost its sacredness. Divorce became commonplace, and alternative forms of marriage were accepted. Two, feminist movements undermined complementary and cooperating roles as women lost interest in mothering and pursued personal power. Three, parental authority became increasingly difficult. Public disrespect for parents and authority increased. Delinquency and promiscuity became more commonplace. Fourth, adultery was celebrated, not punished. People who broke their marriage vow were admired. And then fifth, there was an increased tolerance for incestuous and homosexual sex with an increase in sex-related crimes. Now, Zimmerman wrote those observations in 1947. He wrote them about other civilizations, but it sure seems that his definable pattern was a thoroughly accurate prognostication of life in the United States in the 21st century. We're there. We are so far down the slippery slope, the best we can hope for is delay, but there will certainly be no recovery. And while we can't change the course of our nation, God's word does tell us how we should live, how we should protect our homes, how we can protect our own little civilizations from destruction. We're in Genesis 19 this morning. It's a very dark chapter, it reveals some of mankind's worst qualities. And as much as I would like to skip over this bit of history, God preserved this account for us. There's something to be learned here. I thought this week of Paul's words in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. And I want to assure you, if you're a parent here in the venue, you have children in the room, I will be as cautious as possible. But the, the wretched behavior in Genesis 19 is reflective of our nation today. And it should outrage and, and sicken us. Genesis chapter 19, let me read the first 14 verses. We're going to cover all the way through uh, verse 29 of this chapter. So I'll encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we walk through that verse by verse. Genesis 19 verse 1. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. 
But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let, them, let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has now become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone that you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place because of the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. I'm not sure what word best describes the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are several words, none of them very nice. I guess I would choose the word cesspool because of all the filth that overflowed from these cities and contaminated everything and, and everyone around them. These two cities were an economic hub. There was a lot of wealth. There was beautiful architecture. There was, there was art. But the beauty of the two cities was just a thin veneer over a very ugly underbelly. They were notorious for their depravity, their immorality. Two angels come. These are the same two angels who visited Abraham in Genesis 18. They've now made their way to Sodom. You notice the Lord is no longer with them. When they arrive, it says that they found Lot sitting in the gate. The, the gate served two purposes. One, it was the primary entrance into the city. Two, the gate was the place that served kind of as the city hall. In a city gate, leaders or elders would, would gather, they would debate issues, they would conduct business, they would settle disputes, they would gather to give advice to whoever the chief ruler of the city was, give advice on civil matters. So Lot being in the gate reveals that he was not an ordinary resident of Sodom, but he had become an active participant in the political and civil affairs and in the commerce of Sodom. So why had Lot become so active? Why had he become so uh, attached to the city of Sodom? If you remember in Genesis 13, when Abraham and Lot chose to separate, Lot initially moved in the direction of Sodom out of greed and selfishness. By this point, he's lived there long enough that there's no doubt he's acutely aware of the excessive depravity, and he's chosen to become a part, an integral part of this immoral, immoral city. Why does he stay? He probably stays because of the benefits that he has received financially, but he probably also stays because he can't figure out how to extract himself and his family. Before we completely write off Lot is, is godless, let me mention in the New Testament in 2 Peter, we read these words about Lot. Lot was a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. Living among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul by the low deeds he saw 
and heard. It's good to know that the, the godless activity in Sodom bothered him. You know, it's possible that at some point in Lot's sojourn there in Sodom, he was desiring to be a positive testimony for the God of Abraham. Perhaps Lot even thought that he could be an influence, he could entice some of the people of Sodom to turn from their sin and, and to follow God. But there certainly comes a time when you make the decision to shake the dust off your sandals and to move on. The angels come, it says in verse 1, they're, they're still in human form like they were when they visited Abraham. They look like men. There's no halos, there's no wings, there's no flowing white robes, but something in Lot recognizes there's something about them. And so like Abraham, he bows low with his face to the earth. He asks them to come into his home to, to uh, wash the dust from the journey, to stay the night. He tells them, you can be on your way in the morning. And this, as we saw in Genesis 18, is typical hospitality in the Middle Eastern culture. Look how the angels respond. Nah, no thanks. We'll just hang out here in the town square. Now, angels don't need sleep. They don't need a place to, uh, to stay. It, it appears their intention here was twofold. One is they're going to test Lot. And two is, they want to give Lot a vivid reminder of the incredible depravity of Sodom. He, he's become callous to it. They want to remind him of how depraved Sodom is so that when the time comes, when the Lord truly brings destruction on the city, there will be no surprise and no argument about why God is destroying the city. And Lot knows the city well. In most cities, a stranger could spend the night in the town square and be perfectly safe, but, but not in Sodom. I imagine when Lot heard that these two men were planning to spend the night in the town square, it kind of panicked him. And so he appeals and he prevails and they come to his house and he feeds them. But verse 4 says, before they lay down, the men of the city, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Look again at that description of who surrounded the house. Young, the men of the city, young and old, all the people to the last man of the city. Everyone was guilty. There aren't even going to be 10 righteous people in the city. Sodom is in complete rebellion and sinful depravity. Verse 5, and, and again, parents, I'm going to be careful here. The men, it says, wanted to know the two men in Lot's house. That doesn't mean they were planning to introduce themselves and exchange contact information. The word know is the same word in Genesis 4 where it says Adam knew his wife and she bore him a son. These men of Sodom wanted to come and take Lot's two guests by force and their intentions were clear. Listen, their moral compass wasn't off a few degrees. Their moral compass was completely smashed and destroyed. There was no shame and no guilt and no remorse in these men. And so Lot goes out and tries to reason with them, and I'm not going to reread his offer in verse 8. It's, it's the stuff of nightmares. It is shameful and disgusting and makes me sick to my stomach. Listen, Lot had responsibility to protect his guests, but no custom and, and no law should have superseded his responsibility to care for and protect his family. He's lived in the cesspool for so long, his mind and heart have become completely twisted. His decision here is beyond comprehension. I feel quite certain every man in this 
room who has daughters would go to any extreme, even committing an act of violence to protect his daughters. More than one young man in this church has heard me say, I've got a shotgun, a shovel, and acres out back. Amen. Let me pause here and say something, something to men who have children and especially who have daughters. The ultimate protection you can give your daughter is to have an emotional connection with her. Let me say that again. The ultimate protection you can give your daughter is to have an emotional connection with her. See, guys, when our, when our girls get older, when they get in the preteen years and older, we kind of get, uh, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to hug. We don't know how to speak. Your daughter needs to get her self-esteem and her value from her daddy, not from some young boy who's up to who knows what. He doesn't need to be speaking sweet nothings in her ear. You need to be speaking sweet somethings in her ear. She needs you as her dad. You've got to be fully involved in every aspect of her life. You need to be an example of purity, of upstanding godly character. See, men, when we're an example of purity and upstanding godly character, it raises the bar for what they expect to find in a husband. More than anything else, you need to be suspicious of absolutely every boy that ever comes over to your house. (laughs) Lot's ready to throw his daughter to the wolves, but the wolves have no interest in women. And notice, Lot pleads with them not to do this wicked thing. His plea not to do evil not only falls on deaf ears, but they are angry at Lot calling their behavior wicked. They want to hurt him. And can I tell you, in our current climate, it's becoming more and more common that a person is threatened with bodily harm for calling evil, evil. I shared with you sometime back, you may remember, that my youngest daughter has decided that I'm going to get shot one day. Now, she appreciates my stance on biblical issues like homosexuality and abortion and and other things. She appreciates that stance, but she's afraid I'm going to get shot one day. And I laughed when she told me that and told her, man, what a way to go. You see, you know what I think about? I think about Jesus' words in Matthew, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can destroy both the body and the soul. I'm much more fearful of God than I am of men. And so I'm going to say what's true and what's right regardless of the threat. The angels quickly pull Lot into the house. They shut the door. They they strike all those men with blindness. You know, you'd think if you were struck with blindness, that would get your attention, right? You'd think if suddenly you were struck with blindness, you'd stop what you're doing and and run away. Well, maybe you wouldn't run away. You'd, You'd get away somehow, right? But look what it says about these men in verse 11. After being struck with blindness, it says, they wore themselves out groping for the door. When you've gone far enough down sin's path, nothing gets your attention. When you've gone far enough down sin's path, you you are so overcome with the lust to sin that your mind and heart are completely overruled by your desire to do evil. If Lot didn't know it before, at this point, the true nature of the city has been revealed. There is no doubt that the judgment of God on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding area, no doubt that his judgment is just. 
verses 12 through 14, you see the sense of urgency. The angels tell Lot to round up his family, anyone that is important to him, and they need to move quickly because destruction is coming. Well, other than those in his house, the scripture mentions that Lot has two sons-in-law. They're not yet married, but they're engaged to his daughters. You know, I read that, and, and that begged the question for me, how in the world did Lot find two men in Sodom that he would give his daughters to? Men, you, you need to be involved in that. Pro if some young punk comes into your house and asks for the hand of your daughter, you better do a lot of research and a lot of work before you give your daughter to that man. What, what character qualities, what, what sin did Lot have to overlook? What compromise did he have to make to give his daughters to two men of Sodom? Verse 14 says that the son-in-laws thought he was joking. Lot goes to these two young men and he tells them that God has revealed to him the city is going to be destroyed. I think they probably found it hard to believe that Lot had any kind of relationship with God, much less a relationship close enough that God would reveal his plans to Lot. And so they laughed. Verses 15 and 16, you need to follow with me now. We haven't read past 14. Verses 15 and 16, the angels are urging Lot to get going. Listen, you wouldn't have to tell me twice, but, but Lot lingers, he delays. We, we don't know why. Maybe he's wondering, is God really going to destroy all this, all these people? Maybe he's lingering because he's looking around at all that he is going to lose. But it says the angels grab Lot and his family. No, no, he says they seize, they, they grab Lot and his family by the hand and they drag them to the edge of the city. Why did God do that? Why did he even, if, if Lot was going to linger and Lot was going to question, why didn't he just leave him there to be destroyed? Verse 16 says that God was acting with mercy. He didn't have to spare Lot, but he was being merciful and he was being gracious and they're taking his mercy for granted. They're, they're weighing God's mercy against their comfortable life. They're deciding what was more valuable to them. So they're just dragging their feet. God is certainly a lot more patient with Lot than I would have been. Look in verses 18 through 22. Not only is Lot taking his sweet time obeying the evacuation order, but in verses 18 through 22, he wants to change the plan of escape. He says to the angels, look, look I, don't, I don't want to flee to the hills. Maybe he was worried because he's having to give up his comfortable life in the city. He's become so entrenched in the, the affluence and the comfort that he delays his departure. Now he's worried about the hardship of living in the hills, of living in the wilderness. So he asks them for permission to go to another city. And I don't know why, but God again is gracious and, and he allows that. Listen, if God ever warns you and tells you that you're in a place of destruction and God gives you a plan of escape, a route to get away from that place, just go. Just go. Don't, don't question his commands. God is omniscient. He knows more than you. He knows better than you. If God says go, get out of this, this is going to destroy you, just go. Take God seriously. Men, I, I'm not picking on you today, but we're the spiritual leaders of our homes. When we don't take God seriously, typically our wife and children don't take him seriously either. Look what happens. 
Lot and his wife and daughters finally get to Zoar, the little city that God agreed to spare. And immediately God begins to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and all the cities in the valley. It says that sulfur and fire destroyed everything, every inhabitant, everything that grew on the ground, everything in the area was completely annihilated. Look at verse 17, the instruction to flee. Look at this directive that was part of the instruction to flee. Don't look back. They weren't to look back on what had been left behind. There's nothing back there for them. No, no relationships, no possessions, nothing. But Lot's wife didn't take God seriously. She longed for what had been left behind in Sodom. She'd been reluctant to leave. She was bonded to her neighbors. She didn't want to give up her stuff and, and her status. And with that backwards glance, she doomed herself. Verse 26 tells us that she turned into a pillar of salt. And so the destruction ends the next morning. We see in verse 29, Abraham's view the next morning. Verse 29 clarifies God remembered Abraham. Doesn't mean he forgot him. It means Abraham was on his mind and God spared Lot because of Abraham. Because of his covenant relationship with a man that he declared to be righteous because of his faith. Now, as within any narrative of scripture, this story is not just for our entertainment. It's here for a reason. Genesis 19 is a warning regarding God's vengeance and his, his judgment of sin. Now, if you're here this morning and you haven't been around here very long and you don't know me well, let me just say I don't go looking for hot buttons to push. I don't look to pick fights. But on the other hand, I don't shy away from certain biblical issues or passages because they are controversial. And I'll assure you, if, if the truth offends you, there are plenty of churches right here in our area that will protect you from the truth. And in a sin-plagued society, the Bible is controversial and the message is offensive to some. But as a pastor, I have the responsibility before God to handle the word of God correctly, and I will stand before him one day and give account, and I will not shy away from the truth no matter how unpopular. That being said, I'm sure there was at this point a great variety of sin in Sodom, but in the account here of Genesis, it makes it very clear that the homosexual lust and behavior brought the severest judgment you see on a city. In scripture. Now to be clear, every one of us, every one of us are sinners. And we're all worthy of divine vengeance. We're all worthy of judgment. Sin is sin before the Lord. The penalty of, uh, for sin, scripture says, is death. That, that's for any sin. You know, we, we like to grade or we like to, to rank sins to to feel good about ourselves because we can compare ourselves to someone else and saying, oh, well, the sin I committed is not as great as the sin he committed or the sins that she has committed. The only comparison any of us need to make is to Christ. And Christ was perfect and he was sinless and we are not. 
We need the forgiveness of Christ so that God is able to look at us through that lens of what Christ did for us on the cross. Because of Christ, God is able to look at us and declare us to be righteous because we stand in the righteousness of Christ. For that to happen, we have to repent of sin. We're all sinners. Scripture's clear that sin is wretched, and in the eyes of God, it is punishable by death. All sin. But we have to ask the question, why does God's word speak in a much stronger tone about the sin of homosexuality? You know, God has condemned homosexuality throughout Scripture, through every age. Here, here in Genesis 19, the age of the patriarchs, God clearly condemns it. In, in the law of Moses, in the time of the law, the, the period of the law, the age of the law, Leviticus 18 and 20, God condemns it. In the period of the prophets, Ezekiel, 6, Ezekiel 16, God condemns it. In the New Testament, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Jude 7 and 8, God condemns it. You know, the primary uh, New Testament passage in dealing with homosexuality is Romans 1. And if you look at Romans 1, there's an extensive, but not exhaustive, an extensive list of sins. Evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, deceit, disobedience to parents, hating God. And that's just to name a few. But in that same passage in Romans 1, Paul spends extra words and extra time really singling out, being very clear about the sin of homosexuality. It's in verses 26 and 27 of Romans chapter 1. Why is that? Homosexuality is the worst earthly expression of man's fallenness. Every sin in our lives demonstrates we're fallen, but, but this particular sin is the worst earthly expression of our fallen. So why do you say that? Well, it's an absolute, complete rejection of God's created order and design. It's total rebellion against the creator. It's saying to God, well, your design is flawed and, and your purpose for mankind is, is senseless. It's a creature putting himself above creator, usurping the will and usurping the, the plan of the creator. You know, the amazing thing, and you know this is true in our day and in our age, although scripture is very clear, those who wish to justify their sin will twist the scripture. And many churches, many groups, many denominations who claim to know God have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, especially here. Let's just remember the created order of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man, and the word there would mean mankind, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Now look at this. Male and female, he created them. This is a, this is a very clear, totally accurate translation from the Hebrew. He created mankind... And then he created two types of mankind. The Hebrew word zaher is male, and the Hebrew word nekeva is female. Those two types. God didn't create a third type. He's God. He created. He does what he wants. What he wanted was two types. This is divine creation. In verse 28, after he created them, what did he tell them? Go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Two men can't do that. 
Two women can't do that. Genesis 2.24, creation account. He said they were to become one flesh. A man and a woman are anatomically designed to become one flesh. Think about this. I I never thought about this before this week. You know, the the greatest indication of the one flesh design is the product, a child. Two come together, and what do they create? They create one, one flesh. You know, one of those prevalent while we're talking about creation, one of those prevalent explanations for homosexual behavior today is, well, it's genetic. There's just a predisposition wired in certain people. They, They didn't choose it. They can't help it. They certainly shouldn't be held responsible. Listen, I don't care what you've heard or read, that lie has never been and will never be proven scientifically. It is a lie. It is an attempt to usurp the spiritual authority of God. Now, what does that have to do with what I said about creation? Well, let's think about this. When God created man, if you read the account in Genesis, when God created man, he declared all of creation, what? Very good. God did not, God would not create anyone with a predisposition to a behavior that he would later condemn. Man chooses to be sinful. If you're involved in habitual sin, be it homosexual sin, be it adultery, your habitual adulterer, it's not a result of genetics. It's not something you can't help. It's not the result of some dysfunction in your family growing up. That, that may have predisposed you, um, may have contributed to the temptation, but it's not your family's fault. Simply sin. Sin is a choice. All sin is a choice. And I want to say again, I'm not picking on one group. We're all sinners. We're all in need of of mercy and grace. All of us must come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. And when we receive his forgiveness, Scripture says, we will bear the fruit of repentance. We will change. We won't continue in habitual sin. So I want to be sure you hear me clearly today. I'm not trying to heap greater condemnation on one sin than another, but the passage this morning clearly addresses the issue of homosexuality. If I were preaching in Matthew 5 this morning, we'd be talking about adultery. And I'd say the same things. But this passage addresses homosexuality. We can't ignore it. We can't justify it. We can't accept it. We can't keep silent. And I know in a a room this size with those watching online, those in the venue, I know there are probably several, if not many, who have a friend or or a family member involved in homosexuality. I'm not judging them or you. That's not my job. I'm not condemning them or you. I don't have the power to do that. I'm not telling you to judge them. I'm not telling you to reject them. It's not what I'm saying this morning. You know, it seems like anytime we say something about homosexuality, people say, well, you're not very loving, you're, you're judgmental. And they might even say, well, that's not what Christ would say. Well, what would Christ say? What, what would Jesus say to someone caught up in sin and living a sinful lifestyle? 
know exactly what he would say. Very gently, very graciously, he would say to them, go and sin no more. He said it to the woman caught in adultery. I suppose it'd be loving to not tell someone who is in sin that has heard that God is a God of love. I suppose it'd be really loving not to tell them that God is also a God of holiness and justice. I suppose it'd be loving to allow someone to go on in their sin and not tell them that God calls us to repent. Listen, I'm not talking, and and you've seen this happen. I'm not talking about screaming at people. I'm not talking about calling them names. I'm not talking about calling down curses on them. But I'm also not talking about watching people silently self-destruct because we're worried about offending them. That's not loving. Everyone in this church who has come to Christ To come to Christ, you had to be confronted with your sin and you had to recognize your need for a savior. You can't come to Christ if you don't recognize you're a sinner. You can't come to Christ if you don't recognize your need for a savior. And I realize, I actually told our staff this morning to really be in prayer, I also told them to pay attention this morning like they never have before. Because I told them it's very likely that I'm gonna be misquoted Someone's going to hear something I didn't say. I realize it's, it's very possible this morning that some of you have been offended and you've tuned me out. Would you just tune back in just for a moment? We are not homophobic around here. We don't hate anyone regardless of their sin. We call out sin because of love. God loves sinners. We follow him, so we love sinners. It's not our job to condemn. That's not what we're doing. Our job is to speak the truth and, and, and to warn. The reason we speak of the love and grace of God is so that every sinner knows there is no sin that is too great to be forgiven. There is no sinner that is too horrible, too sinful, that they can't, he can't be accepted. That's why we speak of God's love and God's grace, but we also speak of the holiness and judgment of God to bring conviction, to remind every sinner that destruction awaits those who refuse to repent. That's God's word. That's not my word. And I'll tell you, that responsibility is quite sobering. If you're living in sin today, any sin, You don't have to be powerless. You're not hopelessly stuck in your sin. Your condition's not beyond the grace of God. You can turn from your sin. I'll be honest, you you can't do it on your own. You need Jesus. You need salvation. You need forgiveness. You need to have the power of sin over you broken. And all of that is available. Jesus is available. Salvation is available. Forgiveness is available. The power of sin being broken. All of that is available. 